Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Space Talk. I'm so happy you're here. I am the host, Athena Brentsberger, and I am just so, so excited to get into a new series uh, with this episode, which is historical figures in space exploration and in the field of astronomy. Uh, so first of all, happy uh, winter solstice. Today is December 21st. So wherever you are, uh, maybe just give a little bit of an appreciation to the changing of seasons. Um, that is, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, happy summer. I hope you're enjoying the warmth. It's quite cold <laughs> in places further north right now. Um, so I thought, you know, to kick this off, why not start with the very person whose birthday is this week? So as far as historical figures go, and that is Johannes Kepler. So before I go ahead and jump into chatting about Johannes Kepler, um, what I am intending for doing this new series on historical figures is to not only shine light on some of these very important, uh, really big shoulders that uh, have really built the foundation for astronomy and our understanding of the universe, and of course, in the entire field of space exploration. Uh, because if we're going to not only mention astronomers, mathematicians, physicists, but also um, some of those scientists who've also gone to space or inventors or creators that have shaped our modern world of, of both space exploration and also observing the stars from here on Earth. So it's not only to just shine light on them, but also to recognize what it is that they may have contributed to um, our modern day understanding of the universe in its whole. And so that's a little bit of uh, kind of background of why I decided to start this series here on Space Talk. Uh, but it's also to knowing where we came from, knowing our history is extremely important. It's fundamental. It's uh part of the building blocks that allows us to shape uh, modern day theories. It allows us to get to the next level of scientific advancement. And also really important to not, you know, maybe not go backwards um, or maybe to go backwards and revisit how a lot of things were uh, put together, figured out, discovered, and then apply that to new realms, uh, new areas in which we haven't even explored yet. Uh, such as, you know, other dimensions. So uh, that, that I think could be really, really useful and helpful as well. So without further ado, let's jump into the first historical figure for here on Space Talk. And it goes to German astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler. So starting first with his birthday, which is this week, December 27th, he was born in 1571 lived until November 15th, 1630. So this was during the 17th century. He was a very, very important figure to the scientific revolution during this time period. There was a lot um, being uh, explored during this time period uh, with kind of just our, our understanding of reality, of what this, uh, where we are in our universe. Um, this is right after uh, the time that, you know, you have a lot of uh, discrepancies between um, the church and more philosophical modern day scientific thinkers. And there's quite a lot of conflict 
And in fact, Johannes Kepler, Kepler also went through that. And so that is mainly tied into the fact of where he came from, what he was born into. Um, he was not born into wealth. He was born into poverty. Uh, he really kind of struggled. Um, he also struggled with health as well. Um, and his parents as well were, uh, you know, not, not, not the, mo the most wealthy on the block. Um, so because of this, uh, you tend to go down certain paths of whatever is really available at the time. And a big thing that he ended up following was, well, his intelligence. His intelligence uh, was, was really prominent um, at a very young age. But at the same time, too, what was really important during this time was something known as the Lutheran ministry. So following uh, the church and going down that path. And especially, too, from coming from a place where he didn't have a lot of money, that was definitely much more of uh, a, a accessible option for him. So where he was, he grew up in Germany. Um, he was born in Veldestadt, Württemberg. I'm going to try and pronounce that as much as I can. Um, I do have so, some German in me, but <laughs> not, not really doing the name justice. Uh, but it's in Württemberg, so it's W-U-R-T-T-E-M-B-E-R-G, uh, which is also known as the Holy Roman Empire of German nationality. So be, being born in this region uh, and growing up around this entire uh, environment of, again, like really a heavy importance on the church, heavy importance on uh, the ministry following, going down that path sort of seems like the best thing. He ends up going, uh, earning a full scholarship, going to the University of Tübingen, Tübingen. Hope I, I pronounced that correctly. Uh, but, you know, regardless, uh, it ends up being a really, really interesting path for him. He started to be introduced now to the ideas of Copernicus. So previously, uh, Copernicus had introduced the heliocentric model of, of our solar system and said, you know, that the earth is not at the center. The geocentric model is phony. It's false. It's not correct. Uh, we revolve around the sun. The sun does not revolve around us. And so, um, you know, just, just, just before his time, you have this going on. He learns about this, uh, completely sets him down the path of mathematics, um, this was about, about now the year 1596. This was the first time that he um, wrote an outspoken defense of the Copernican system. This is called Mysterium Cosmographicum. Grofacium. Kind of a strange, strange name, um, but uh, really, really important during this time period. Uh, there wasn't a lot of people really speaking out. Uh, for the Copernican model, uh, because it wasn't approved by by the church, uh, the church and state. It was it was they, those two were so conjoined and strong, and having uh, these contradicting thoughts that you know who during this time we were seen as well. If we are if we are God's creation, we should be in the center of not only the solar system but the whole universe is probably revolving around us. That was also the perspective before telescopes started to also be more um, introduced where we started seeing that there are bodies orbiting other bodies like moons orbiting Jupiter, the Galilean moons discovered by Galileo using the telescope. And so it became a totally different perspective that things actually orbit each other. 
and that we orbit uh, the sun and the moon orbits us. So all of this was like really um, taboo thinking. This this was not normal or standard for this time period. There were a few philosophers and, and mathematicians that were um, exploring these ideas, but unfortunately, a lot of them were either uh, put into you know house arrest or executed, um, or just kind of like yeah excluded from from society, and so it was really tough to to get these ideas across. And I think that that's an interesting thing to note because for some reason I think this is still forgotten that this is sort of our repeated history throughout humanity whenever there's new scientific ideas um, or possible discoveries is that a lot of times the majority speak against it saying, no, this is silly. This is no, you know, this is never going to be serious. It's never going to be real. This is never going to be tangible. This isn't correct. Um, and it's possible it's not. And of course we want to have skepticism. Um, but history shows that that tends to happen quite frequently. A modern day example, I would say, is cryptocurrency uh, when Bitcoin came out. Um, so much talk against it from the highest economics economicists um, saying this is this is totally not tangible. This is something that's you know going to be really bad for our economic system. But ever since we introduced the digital era, the computer, uh, the the internet, this became an idea of why does digital money not exist quite yet? Um, and when is the first digital currency going to come out? Those were some of the biggest questions uh, right after the internet became a thing and accessible to everyone who had a computer. Um, and so it's only a matter of time before that. Uh, yeah, that, that it already is a huge prominent part of our lives. Um, if you don't already, you know, invest in some kind of cryptocurrency, I would highly recommend doing that. I think it's a, it's a really good idea. I think I started with a few dollars and then uh, added maybe a little bit more at a time, but I think, and there's still so much, I don't know. Point is, uh, these things are always evolving throughout throughout all of human history. And it's just a matter of taking note of what is it that's going on in our time period that can be our modern day example of what went on in the past. So I'm going to do a quick music break before we get to Kepler's laws, some of his biggest contributions to modern day science and the scientific revolution. All right, let's jump into Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Very, very important contribution to the field of astronomy, to our understanding of our very own solar system, 
and also our understanding um, and major important factor to discovering exoplanetary systems as well. Uh, by the way, if you haven't heard the term exoplanet or exoplanetary before, basically just it's a planet that is not in our own solar system or it's a another solar system. So you got exoplanet, which is a planet that's not within our solar system. And then you have exoplanetary system. And it's basically just another solar system elsewhere that is not ours. Uh, so you can call it a planetary system. There, There's like, you know, very, very little debate around that. It's, it's, we all understand it's the same thing. Uh, the only reason we call our planetary system the solar system is because we call our star that is our host star, the sun, and hence the name solar. But an easy way to understand it is that any exoplanetary system is just another solar system out there in our universe. And so the whole point is understanding um, how our system is structured helps lead to discoveries of more planets beyond our own little neighborhood here leads to discovery of uh, also what else might be out there what is more uh, probable to orbit around different types of stars as well because not all of the stars that we find are like our sun in fact, a lot, most of the stars within our own galaxy are actually low mass brown dwarf stars. <laughs> and they're very cold stars. They're very cool. They don't emit a lot of heat. And so those planets, um, in order for there to be potential life on them, would have to be orbiting closer to their star. With that being said, let's jump into talking about the, um, the motion of planets around stars. And this was the birth of Kepler's law. Kepler's law of planetary motion has three different laws within it. And the first one is the law of ellipses, which says that every planet's orbit is an ellipse with the sun at its focus. An ellipse is an oval, an oval shape. So it's not a perfect circle. Uh, you're going to have um, an, ap uh, an aphelion and a perihelion. So your, your closest point, perihelion, aphelion, your furthest point in the orbit. So you're going to have, if you draw a circle on a piece of paper and you elongate it a little bit, making it an oval, that is an ellipse. If you draw the sun at the center, you're going to have some areas of this ellipse in which the planet would be orbiting closer to the sun and then some points of the ellipse where that planet is orbiting further away from the sun. If you just joined the call, we are talking about a very important historical figure in astronomy with the name of Johannes Kepler. He was a very, very important contributor to the scientific revolution of the 17th century. And his birthday is this week. So if you're just joining and you're thinking about having a birthday celebration that isn't your own, celebrate Johannes Kepler's birthday, which was on December 27th in the year 1571. Very important German astronomer and mathematician. We just went over his history. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to this episode, but now we're on one of his biggest contributions to astronomy, which are his his uh, laws of planetary motion. So Kepler's first law is the law of ellipses. And if you are going to illustrate this at home, try tracing a point moving into plane so that the sum of its equal distances from two other points, known as the, the foci, 
is constant or resulting when a cone is cut by an oblique plane, which does not intersect the base. So that, that is the proper de definition when it comes to the geometry of an ellipse. But the easiest th th way to describe it is, again, thinking about how Earth orbits the sun. There are points in which we are located closer to the sun and points where we are located further away from the sun. And this is really important for things like understanding our weather changes, our seasons. Actually, a big reason why we have seasons is actually because of our tilt on our on our axis of rotation. The Earth is tilted by about 23 degrees off of its axis. So it's not directly up and down. It's slightly to the, a diagonal. And because of this, we have these changes of seasons on each part of our sphere. And this is why also um, we have those in the Southern Hemisphere celebrating summertime while we're celebrating wintertime. Uh, really, really kind of funny how that happens. Also, the Southern Hemisphere right now, I believe, is facing uh, the sun. And we also happen to be closer in our orbit to the sun during, during our wintertime in the Northern Hemisphere. And we're facing away from our sun right now. This is why we have these seasons. This is why we have the winter solstice. So all thanks to Yo uh, Johannes Kepler and his laws of planetary motion, we understand this. We understand the moving body within our universe, within our solar system. And we realize that it's not just Earth that behaves like this, but all the other planets too. Most of them have this really interesting orbit and on top of that, other planets, exoplanets, that term again, exoplanetary systems. This helps us be able to calculate and measure the probability of there being alien life on another planet, the possibility of it being a habitable place. If it's located at a certain region that's close enough within its orbit to its host star. I'm going to play a music break and then we're going to jump to Kepler's second law of planetary motion. All right, let's jump into Kepler's second law. If you're just joining, we are celebrating a historical figure in the field of astronomy by the name of Johannes Kepler, a scientific revolutionary of the 17th century. Um, absolutely incredible human being who actually came from a pretty rough upbringing, um, came from uh, a poverty and an illness and uh, followed down this really interesting path, kind of stumbling around uh, along the way with the Lutheran ministry and finding his way to science, to Copernicus ideas, Copernicus's ideas when he, in year 1596, um, only about 20 years after he was born, a little less. And by then he ends up exploring his own ideas of how planetary bodies move within space that were not 
a dome. We're not encapsulated. Earth is not encapsulated by these finite points on the night sky. And that we are not um, at the center with everything orbiting around us. But in fact, we are actually just moving throughout space uh, with everything else moving throughout space on its own path. And then not, not everything is circled around us, which is just a revolutionary thought at the time. Now getting into Kepler's second law, law of equal area. This is a really interesting uh, law. Uh, it, it took me a little bit of a grasp in high school to start to really kind of imagine this. But if you draw out your ellipse and you draw a line between a center point, the sun, and then a point, two different points in the orbit of whatever the object is that's going around it, say, um, say the earth. And then you were to draw a, sm a triangle. You were to draw an angle. So you choose uh, two points right next to each other on the ellipse and then draw a line going toward that center point. So then you have an angle and then you do one on the opposite side. It says that a line joining the sun and a planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. So if you do this, you'll see that on one end of the ellipse, it's going to cover the same amount of time than it would on the other end. So about a month. This is what's really interesting. This, If you want to think about seasons here, when you're traveling around the sun, the earth is traveling around the sun, it's going to still pass a month at a time, a month at a time, a month at a time until it does all 12 months doing the full circle or the full ellipse around the sun. And even though the orbit is shaped like an elongated circle, so it's now an ellipse, it's an oval, it doesn't mean that it's going to take longer to cover one side than the other. It should cover the same amount of time, no matter what chunk of the orbit you choose. So I'm literally sitting here like using my hands, trying to like draw it out and sort of display it. Um, but I really recommend drawing this out using maybe a protractor or something to, or a compass to draw this out on a piece of paper and experiment with it on, with yourself. Um, I think it would be, be really interesting. And so this was an important factor, which was again, understanding how long it takes, takes objects to move around a center of mass. So how long it takes moons to move around Jupiter, how long it takes our planets to move around the sun and how long it might take um, Trappist 1A through F to move around the Trappist star in the center, the Trappist system. Really interesting uh, exoplanetary system, by the way. So that was that, that is Kepler's second law, law of equal areas. And then we have Kepler's third law of planetary motion. And this one is, 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 is pretty cool. It's, it's an equation. So it's P squared equals A cubed. P is the period, which is the planet's orbital period. So how long it takes to, to do its entire orbit. And it says that a planet's orbital period is proportional, sorry, the square of it is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit. So um, if you want to draw this out, again, this would be a little bit easier for you to understand sort of where, where the semi-major axis is. 
So the semi-major axis is a point on um, on this ellipse from that center point of where the object is, say the sun that's in the middle, to wherever the earth would be in a, in a given choice, in a given point. That distance right there is a semi-major axis. And so this is saying now that the period in which it takes for it to go around, that squared is equal to that semi-major axis is cubed. So this is one of the most important um one of the most important laws of the Kepler laws that this one is usually the one that's when people say like, Oh, like Kepler's laws of planetary motion. This is the one everyone thinks about. Um, again, I think we're going to try, we should definitely try to illustrate this in, in a video. It might help a little bit with understanding it. Uh, but this one is one of the, the things that ended up in history books all over the place um, and all over probably any astronomy class you've taken in astronomy textbooks. Um, and it aids a lot in also, again, the discovery of these different planets in different planetary systems. We're going to do one more quick musical break, and then we're going to wrap our concluding thoughts on Johannes Kepler. Alrighty, we are in the home stretch of today's episode of Historical Figures. We're going to do a little bit more of an explanation on Kepler's Third Law. Uh, just give one more sort of visual for us and also something that'll just be a little bit easier to uh, probably put into perspective, which would be the sun and earth. But as an example, if say you found a planetary system, uh, I don't know, we'll say like next, we'll just say next door. I don't want to give any numbers just yet. We found a planetary system and it's found that the planet, it orbits its star with a period of eight years. What we want to find out is the length of the semi-major axis of the ellipse that orbits along this point. So what, how, where this object orbits around this, this star, if it obeys Kepler's third law. So what you'll end up doing is using the equation p squared equals a cubed is put that number eight, so the period, into the equation. So eight squared, 64. And then you try to figure out, okay, what's the cubed root of that? Because now you want to try and get a. And um, you end up with what your total is right there. And so, so then this is how basically you can figure out just how far the planet is that is orbiting around its star. To put that into perspective for Earth 
and the sun. So we, we've used the term astronomical units before. And we know that one AU is the average distance between the earth and the sun. And we understand that P, which is the period, is measured in earth years. And so if we wanted to figure that out, what we would do for P squared equals A cubed is that one AU is that distance. That is the letter A. So if we want to figure out, you know, say P, which we already know how, how long it takes us um, to orbit, to orbit around the sun, uh, you would just put that all into the equation and it would be the same exact process in which that other example was. So I hope that makes a little bit more sense. Um, again, just to put that into perspective where that planet is located in its orbit around the star in which it's, it's orbiting around. So very, very important um, equation. Three different laws brought to us by Johannes Kepler, completely revolutionizing the way that we look at planetary motion, the way that we understand motions of objects in space, and the way that we even find new objects, the way we find new planetary bodies and celestial bodies and how we discover potentially new planets. So that is our first historical figure uh, for um, our very first episode of the series here on Space Talk of Historical Figures. Um, I'll try to do this maybe weekly or monthly, depending on uh, just how much other stuff gets filled up for, for other episodes just because of, I know once the new year starts after the holiday break, uh, everyone that I have planned and lined up is, is going to start joining here on Space Talk. So we'll start having some special guests on. Um, and then of course, make that as an addition to any of our, our weekly updates with, with space news, with what to see in the night sky. And of course, with space history and any like last minute rocket launches. Um, I do feel like it would be important to also start doing some rocket launch coverage. So I'm also going to write that down right now is to start doing rocket launches that happen each week. So we have got a few more exciting things coming up. Um, so I'm going to, I believe I did schedule an episode already on astronomy versus astrology. I think that will be very, very interesting and important to talk about, um, especially because it's something that uh, I've just have had a lot of people approach me before asking about that. And I think that that would be a really, um, yeah, an important episode and, and probably um, hopefully educational for some people. But tomorrow we have uh, at 1 p.m. Central Time, I have scheduled episode 12, which is how celestial objects are named. And again, another thing that I think would be helpful if you are new to stargazing or maybe you're not new, but you just happen to not know. Um, but that'll be very useful for when you're looking for new objects, um, either on your star app or wherever you're looking. So that is about everything that I had planned today. Um, I hope you all have a fabulous rest of your winter solstice. And until next time, add Astra.